All right. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, uh, Peter and the singers. It is great to be together today and have a, a time of worship. I uh, wanted to tell a story. There was this uh, this uh, president of a large accounting firm, and he had his morning meeting with his uh, vice president and with his senior manager. And in the course of the meeting, the uh, senior manager pulled out a magic lamp and said, uh, you know, and rubbed it and out popped a genie. And the genie said, well, normally uh, I give three wishes, but since there's three of you, I'm going to give one wish to each of you. So the senior manager said, well, I want to go first. It was a woman, and she said, I want to be right now in the Bahamas on a speedboat with Tom Cruise. <laughs> Poof, she was gone. Then the vice president went next, and he said, I want to be right now in Hawaii drinking a Mai Tai, sitting on the beach with Beyonce. Poof, he was gone. And then the president came next, and he said, you know... It's a really busy time of year. I want those guys back by lunch. <laughs> you know, in every genie joke, there's always three wishes. I'm going to do something a little different today. I have three sermons, but I'm going to let you pick which sermon you want me to preach today. So here they are. Take your, take some time, think about it, and then just blurt out answers and I'll try to do my best at hearing what most people say, okay? The first one, again, our context is changing your world. It's about worship. The second one, again, same context, is about discipleship. The third one, same context, is about partnership. You tell me, what do you want me to preach on? All three will be a long time. Worship, changed. Okay, well, I heard worship the most, so we're, we're going to go with worship, because that's the one I heard the most. Changing your world, worship. First off, I'm Joe Collins, and I want to welcome you to See Me Church. Our mission is to love God and love people. Last week, Gio talked about uh, changing your perspective, and today I am going to be talking about changing your world, specifically we're going to be talking about worship. Now, I want you to, to have this thought in your head as I jump in to the message today. Worship is more than what happens on Sunday. All right? I want that to be understood right from the start. And now we're going to jump in to our little lesson on changing your world through worship. Let's pray. Father, it is so great to be together we're so grateful for this chance to come to you and look at your word. And I do pray, God, that you speak to every one of us. Get into our hearts. Get into our minds. Help us to understand your scriptures. Help us to hear what you want us to hear. In spite of what I may or may not say, I pray that your spirit will take those words and communicate to every person here what, what they need to hear for themselves today, including myself. God, we love you. We want to worship you. And we want to make a difference in our world with our worship. We put these things before you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. So some of you that have been around a while are familiar with my map. I've been using this map a lot. I think it's really important to, to give us just a little perspective when we talk about uh, passages of the Bible, and especially when they have reference to geography. So this is a map of Palestine in the time of Jesus. We're going to pick up 
in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It says, now that Jesus, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea, went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. We pick up the story in the Gospel of John. It's shortly after Jesus was anointed or baptized by John the Baptist. You may remember John the Baptist was the biggest deal in Palestine at the time, and Jesus came along and John the Baptist told his disciples, hey, that's the guy that you ought to be following. And so thus began the ministry of Jesus, because it really started with John the Baptist sort of passing the torch off on to Jesus. Well, shortly after that, Jesus was in Judea, that area down there. It's a province in Palestine. Down there, Jerusalem is the capital. He spent some time down there in, in and around the area of Jerusalem in the province of Judea. While he was there word started to spread about his ministry. It says that he was gaining more disciples and baptizing them than John was. Now remember, some of you might remember this. If you're new, you, you wouldn't, and that's okay. We did a whole study on John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was the E.F. Hutton of his day. Now I know I just spoke to maybe three people in the room that know that reference, but E.F. Hutton was a big deal in the old days. When I was a kid, it was a commercial, and it went, E.F. Hutton, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. That was John the Baptist. He was the E.F. Hutton of his day. Well, he is just past the torch to Jesus. And as a result, more and more people started following Jesus. Well, that got the attention of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a sect of Judaism that were very pious, they were very rigorous, and they were very influential. And they were always on the lookout for a new leader or a new a new uh, 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 preacher or rabbi in Judaism that they could latch on to to help uh, advance their cause. Jesus wasn't ready for that, nor did Jesus want that kind of attention from the Pharisees. Kind of weird. You would think Jesus would want all the attention he could get, but you know, he didn't always want all the attention he could get. He had a schedule, he had a timeline, and he had a plan, and he was running his plan. And so he decided to leave Judea and go back up north to Galilee, where he was from originally, sort of his home province, so to speak. Now, if you look at the map, it's pretty obvious that the fastest way to get from Judea to Galilee is straight up through that land called Samaria. But that was not a common route that Jews would take at that time. There were long-standing hostilities between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And so for the most part, Jews would avoid going through Samaria. They would cross the Jordan River, they'd go through Perea, the Decapolis, and then they'd cross back over into Galilee, which is a bit out of the way. And if we could see the topography, you would see it was really out of the way because it was downhill and then uphill and all that kind of stuff. But that was their primary way to get up and down between those two provinces because they just did not want to interact with the Samaritans. 
You know, I grew up in LA and the freeways are, you know, the fastest way to get anywhere. And you know, there's just some parts in LA you just don't want to get off the freeway in. You follow me? I mean, how many times I remember being out of gas or hungry or needing to use the restroom and you're like, darn it, <laughs> I need to get past these three exits before I feel comfortable getting off. That was sort of the way it was for the Jews in, in uh, Jesus' day in Palestine. So Jesus decides to go through that way. And more than that, while he's there, he stops for a break in the middle of the day. He stops by a well where he could just uh, chill out and relax. What's interesting here is it says that he, verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. That's very interesting language. Because, as I said before, it wasn't the traditional route, and it wasn't common for a Jew, especially a rabbi, to want to take that route. So why does it say he had to go through Samaria? Well, I don't know. All I know is Jesus had his reasons. They were his. He had a why that he was trying to get towards. You know, knowing your why is really important. When I was getting my master's in counseling, one of the first days of the class, I'll never forget, one of the professors said, if you don't know what you believe, people will tell you. You know, if you don't know your why, there's no telling what you might do. Jesus had a why, and so he decided to take his disciples through Samaria. A few years back, I asked a very good friend of mine, business owner, I said, why do you go through all the trouble to run your business the way that you do? He was pretty diligent about all the laws and obeying all the regulations. And in his business, there were lots of those. And it was normal for people to try to cut corners or ignore most of those regulations. They were silly. Some of you work in fields where there's regulations and, and some of them are just silly. And, and, and people just bypass them because... Uh, it's kind of accepted and customary. But I asked my friend, because he didn't generally do that. He generally followed the rules. And I said, why do you do that? And he said, because it's the right thing to do. He had a why. It was the right thing to do. I'm going to have a little audience participation. What is your why? Why do you do the things you do. To make money. To make money. Okay. Yes. Because it makes sense. Because it makes sense. Yeah. It makes you happy. Because I like people. Because I like people. I want my family to make it to heaven. For, For your family. One more. To be with my kids. To be with your kids. Was one over here? Sorry, Tim, one more. Because uh, I want to be, be better. You know, it's really cool that we have a why, don't we? Many of us do. Maybe you haven't thought about this question much. Maybe I caught you off guard. That's okay. No rule. It doesn't mean you failed any test here. But it is important to know your Why? Because if you don't know your why, there's no telling what you might do. I can think of times in my life where I made decisions that I look back at and I regret. And I think, why did I make that decision? Well, because I didn't really have a why 
for anything at that time in my life. I just did whatever happened next. I just acted in whatever way felt good to me at the time. And there was no guiding principle. There was no guiding light. There was no why that kept me in the guardrails, you know, to, to, to keep me on some sort of path going forward. Verse 7 and 9. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So Jesus stops at noon by this well in the middle of Samaria, and he is waiting there. The disciples went into town to find food, and a woman comes out to draw water from the well, and he asks her for a drink. And now, if you don't have any familiarity with Scripture, it's okay. It may seem kind of a weird interaction because he says, well, you give me a drink. And then she kind of replies kind of smart alecly. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? In other words, oh, oh, wait, aren't you a Jew? Aren't we dogs? Aren't we bad people? What, do you only need us when you want something? It was kind of like that response to Jesus. That's what she gave him. A little bit of sarcasm, a little bit of smart alekiness. Because there was so much hostility between the two groups of people, they didn't have good communication when they did communicate. The hostilities would come up. It is a shame that a rabbi like Jesus was viewed in this way by this Samaritan woman. It's one thing for the woman, I would say, to be sarcastic at Jesus. She had her reasons. But to me, the real shame is that that was her impression of Jewish people in general. That was her experience. That's what she knew of them, whether by personal act or what, uh, interaction or whether it was by word of mouth. What she saw in, in the Jewish people were people who only wanted something when they, when they wanted it. They only talked to you or you were only useful to them when they wanted something from you. And I think that is a crying shame that the Jewish people left the Samaritans with that impression of themselves. You know, we all follow Jesus or are trying to, or want to, or maybe are here because we're interested in starting to. What you do to other people, how you reflect Jesus to other people, the impression you give of other people of yourself matters. It says something to them about who you are and what you believe and why you believe it. It is so important that we make sure we represent ourselves among our fellow people in our worlds, in our communities, admirably. There's no room for bigotry, for racism, for divisiveness, for sin, for anything that causes conflict or separation between people. There's no room for that if we want to be good representatives to the world around us. I believe that God's house is meant to be a house for all people. It's a place for everyone to belong. And if we don't represent ourselves accordingly, no one's going to want to belong in God's house. That's what happened with the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans wanted nothing to do with the Jews and vice versa. And as a result, the Jews were not able to fulfill their mission that God had given them to be a light to the world because they just couldn't get over the hostility the things that separated them from other people. Let that not be said of us. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, would you have asked him 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman replied, I can see you are a prophet. So instead of engaging the, the tried uh, and, and the tired out old argument between Jews and Samaritans when the woman was sarcastic and lipped off at Jesus, instead of giving, getting into that conversation, Jesus does something surprising. He changes the conversation to spiritual things, to things about God and living water. Now, I don't know about you, but I imagine this scene. I, I picture this scene. I picture the woman at the well doing her thing, lowering the bucket or however that worked. And I picture her kind of half ignoring, half humoring, half heartedly listening to Jesus. It is kind of weird that he's sitting there alone and he starts a conversation with her. It's all kind of weird. She kind of gets sarcastic with him. And I can just see him, uh-huh, her, uh-huh, yeah, as she's doing her, her work. Listen, oh yeah, living water. Mm, tell me more about that. Mm-hmm, as she's just trying to get the drink out. That's how I picture the scene. All the way up until the moment he asks about her husband. And then I think she might have stopped and replied to him, I think in a way that said, I don't really want to have this conversation anymore. I have no husband. Now, it's interesting because to ask for her husband was not a weird thing at that time. In fact, the weird thing was that this man, Jesus, and, and this woman were actually talking at all. That was a weird thing to do in the culture at the time. It was a bit risque. You know, an unchaperoned woman with an unchaperoned man, it was just kind of not the thing to do. It wasn't, wasn't kosher. It wasn't etiquette at the time. And so to ask for her husband was sort of a way to invite, uh, you know, hey, let's make this appropriate. Get your husband out here. We can keep this conversation going. But she said, I have no husband. And I really see her trying to say, I, I, I want to go away. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I want to leave. But then Jesus does something that makes the whole thing get really interesting. He says, you're right. You don't have a husband. As a matter of fact, you've had five. And the guy you're with now is your soon-to-be sixth ex-husband. It got real uncomfortable real fast for this woman. Sometimes we're going to have to get uncomfortable with people. And I'm going beyond uncomfortable in a church building where we come together to worship. It's always funny to me how awkward it is for people to raise their hands during a worship. Or sometimes how awkward it is for people to sing out loud so that other people can hear them. Or maybe for someone to go on their knees and pray during worship. All of those things are normal and acceptable things to do in church during worship. But yet we get awkward. We do. We get awkward. I get awkward every now and then. I've seen other people get awkward every now and then. And we hold back and we don't allow the worship to just lift us, to take us to a, to a different place. 
That's why we try to dim the lights. That's why we try to set a mood, because we want it to be as comfortable as possible for you to worship. But the fact of the matter is, it's going to be uncomfortable at some point when you're interacting with Jesus. Amen? Whether it's a conversation, whether it's a prayer, whether it's a time with a fellow believer and you're reading the Bible together and trying to maybe even challenging each other. Maybe it's a conversation with a complete stranger by a well at the drinking fountain at work. Whatever the case may be, it can get uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, it's okay. It should be uncomfortable. Don't you wish you had the ability to do what Jesus did in that talk? That would be awesome. Here you are having a conversation with someone and then you can just say the perfect thing at the right moment that literally stops them in their tracks. Man, that, that's, like a, that's like a superpower. You know, they talk, what, what superpower do you want? I want the one where I can cause people to get seriously uncomfortable all at once in the middle of a conversation. What a great superpower. Jesus was able to do that. It, I think of a, of a first kiss. You remember your first kiss? Okay, this will be biased because I'm speaking from the guy's point of view. But, you know, there's a moment where you kind of have to lean in and you kind of have to go for it. And you're not always sure what the outcome of that's going to be. When I was a very new Christian, this is many years ago, embarrassing story. I was new to the church, and in our church at the time, there was a real strong culture of dating. In other words, people were encouraged, single adult men and women, go on dates, have fun. It was very platonic. It was in groups, all that kind of stuff. And it was great, but I was very uncomfortable with it at first. I, I was like, this is weird. I don't know what to make of this. I was a young single guy, and that was just a very foreign thing for me. And so I didn't go on any dates for a long time until a girl named Julianne finally said, I'm going to ask you out. She asked me out, and we went on a date, and we had a blast. It was awesome. I had a great time. I went on dates every weekend after that. It was no big deal. But at the end of that date, and thank God it was Julianne, because we became friends, and she was the right person to take me out on my first date, I thought I should kiss her. <laughs> I didn't realize that it was really platonic and friendly, and so I tried. I went in for the kiss, and Julianne went back like, like, like this. And uh, I was really embarrassed, but she laughed it off. We became great friends. It all got normalized. It was great. We joke about it, that kind of thing. But thank God it was Julianne. My point, though, is there's that moment where you got to lean in to make it. And you know it's going to get uncomfortable because you're not always sure how this is going to be received. There's that moment in worship when you're there. Should I put my hands up? Should I not? I always like the ones that do this, you know, the, the kind of the halfway. The, get my hands to this point or maybe to here, maybe to here. I'll get to here. But here, here, that's really uncomfortable. You know, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'll put my head down. But hey, get down on my knees and pray. There's people standing around. We got to get okay with that kind of uncomfortability. It helps our worship. It's part of our worship. Right. Sing out loud. Enjoy it. It's also true, though, in our interactions. There's these moments where we're going to get uncomfortable. we got to lean into it. I'm going to lean into something right now that's going to make you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable, to the truth be told, but I'm going to lean in. I want to talk about giving. There, I said it. <laughs> Pregnant pause. Giving. That's one of those conversations that's very hard to have. Even between two people just sitting in a car, sitting over a cup of coffee, talking about their giving. Why? Because it's a personal conversation. 
We, that's one of those areas we think is personal. Politics, religion, giving, money. Who knows what else is out there? I have a funny story. A friend of mine, Dan, went on vacation. He went to, I think it was Fiji. And he loves to, when he goes on vacation, to go find whatever church he can find locally and go to the church for that service. Well, he went to the church there. He found a church there. He went. And at that church, they announced what everybody gave. The amount. That was normal in that, in that service, in that culture even. It was normal for it to be announced. So they would have their little offering time and people would come in and be like, hey, he gave 15 bucks or hey, he gave 100 or hey. And they would blurt it out to the congregation. That would be very awkward. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to blurt that out. We're in a different context. Just making the point that sometimes, you know, uncomfortability is just context. And, and you know, so we got to get okay. We got to get over it. So let me talk about giving for a minute. The first thing I want you to hear is that giving is an act of worship. I want you to look at Psalm, or Proverbs, sorry, chapter 3. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits. He leaned in right there. Not just wealth, general. No, no, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. It's interesting that this little insert about giving is between don't be wise in your old eyes and hey, be okay with discipline. You get the idea that maybe he was talking to his son who wasn't being generous to God. Maybe he wasn't doing what he knew he should be doing, and dad stepped in and said, boy, you got to get your act together when it comes to giving. And I love you, but this is the right thing to do, and you need to think about it. We have a goal in Simi Church. It's a goal for 2019. The goal is to become a self-supported church. If you don't know, see me church, we have very generous people. And, and they've been given over many, many years through their generosity. That's why the church exists to this day. However, what we give currently does not match what we spend currently by about $120,000. I'm being honest. I'm letting this be uncomfortable. I'm being, I'm, I'm just putting it out there. We're leaning in. But that doesn't mean that we can't become self-supported. Now you may say, well, how are we surviving now? Well, we, we, we're blessed to have a savings account. We actually have a pretty sizable savings account. But spending that much over our expenses every year is going to burn that savings account up in about three years, and we will not exist. So, we need to talk about our worship. We need to have this uncomfortable talk about our giving because it's an act of worship. So here's what I've done. I've reviewed the information. Me, me alone. 
And I have discovered that there's about a third of our membership that gives about a tithe, which is what he's referring to here, about 10% of your annual income, however you do that, annually, weekly, monthly, whatever. But there's about a third that are giving that or around that. There's another third that I'm going to say are what I would call are significantly under-giving. What I mean by that is this person is putting $10 a week in the plate. At the end of the year, that's $520. If you were to figure out, if you were to say that was a tithe, what income would you be making per year if you gave $520 a year? $5,200, right? Well, I know most of the people, and I know that they're not making $5,200 a year. My point is, not to shame any one person, not to uh, tell everybody what you're giving or not giving. My point is to say that there's a third of our membership that are not even close to tithing. The other third, there's no indication that they're giving at all. Two-thirds of the church is not even giving, or giving, is not giving, or significantly under-giving. That's not worship. We can do better than that, can't we? So I've done some math, and I've figured out that if... And, and take this the right way, because you got to understand, I understand that everybody's in a different place. But if every member would pledge next year and do it, more than just pledge, but do it, if every member would increase their giving, increase, so if you're giving $5 or if you're giving $100, we're talking about an increase, by $15 a week. So for a single person, that's $65 a month we would be self-supported overnight. That entire deficit is erased right there. And then that savings that we have can be invested into more interns. It can be invested into moving forward as a church, whatever we feel like the need is. Anthony, our worship leader, and Peter, our other worship leader, they, they always need an amp, a guitar. I'm teasing. They always tell me that. It's a joke between us. I need a new Ford. I'm kidding. It's a joke. <laughs> but my point is, is that money could be used to move forward in the church next year. If we would just be willing to worship God with our money next year. $15 per week per member increase. That's what we're talking about. I want to challenge you to take the pledge. To make that a pledge next year, increase your giving. I know some of you are already doing tithing, maybe a little more, maybe close to it. You might say, well, I'm already there. Go further. I tithe. I give more than a tithe. My wife and I talked about this already. I said, honey, I'm not going to ask the church something that we aren't going to do. So we have pledged to increase our giving for us by $130 a month. I want to challenge you to do the same. Well, $15 per member per week, the same. That's, that's what I meant. <laughs> Maybe you aren't giving at all. Maybe you haven't been giving. Hey, just tithing at that point 
If you, if you give a $100 a week because that's a legitimate tithe and you're able to do that, boy, that takes us way beyond our goal, doesn't it? We're within reach of going from a taking church to being a giving church. It's right there. It's right at hand. And we can really spread that act of worship around to doing good in the lives of all kinds of people, including our own children right here in our own fellowship. You know, I thought about my why. My wife actually asked me, Joe, why do you do what you do? And it was funny because it just blurted out of me. I didn't even think about it. But here's what I said. Because I believe the Jesus way is the best way. That just popped right out of my heart. And that is how I believe it. I really do believe that the Jesus way is the best way. And that's why I do what I do. That's why I'm going to give $15 more per my wife and I a week. That's why I get up early and come in and do all the stuff and work extra hard. It's why I stay late. It's why I, I love being in the ministry. It's why I want to do other things, right? It's because I believe the Jesus way is the best way. What is your why? If you haven't thought about it, then who knows what you're going to do. Verse 20, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming. And has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So he's got her attention. She changes the subject to a religious conversation. The big debate between the Jews and the Samaritans was where should we worship? The Samaritans thought Mount Gerizim, which, by the way, is right in the middle of Samaria, where Jesus and the woman happened to be standing. And she said, this is where we should worship, pointing at the, the hillside, the mountain right next to him. And Jesus said, and she said, but you Jews say we should worship all the way down there in Jerusalem at the temple. So which is it? And Jesus's answer is going to surprise you because it surprised me. And I've read this countless times. What did he say? He said, neither Did you catch that? Neither. Now, technically, the proper place to worship, according to, Ju to, the Jude to, to Judaism, ever since the time of, of uh, well, David, when, when Jerusalem was established, was the, the temple at Jerusalem. So technically, that was the right answer. And it's why Jesus said, you worship what you don't know, we worship what we know. But a time was coming when that was going to change. And in fact, the time had already come because Jesus said, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship in, uh, will worship God, uh, in, in, in God's spirit and in God's truth. This was revolutionary. A statement like that in Jesus' time in, in Judea, down around the temple, could get him killed. In fact, it did get him killed eventually. Because what Jesus was saying, and here I go, I'm going to be really cool right now. Jesus was saying that worship is going viral. 
See how hip I am? It was going viral. It was going from building to people. You know, we just moved last week, second service here at our new facility. We're renting it. We're fired up. It's awesome. But never, ever, ever confuse where we gather with where we worship. We gather here, but we worship here. It's an internal, it's an internal belief in God and in God's truth. It's a desire, it's a willingness to let God and His truth dwell within every one of us. And when that happens and we come together to worship, well, then it's just awesome. It's, it's angels singing in heaven. And we've had those moments. I've had those moments right here with this fellowship, with you people, with you folks. I don't know the right way to say that, but we've had these moments where we've been right there and tears are streaming down my eyes because of the worship. People who love God and love His truth together Worshiping, but it's not the building, it's not the location, it's not the musicians, it's not the preacher. Although I love our musicians and we love everything we have, and hopefully you like me, all of that's good. But it's here where it matters. This was revolutionary. No one had considered that as an idea. Wait a second. Neither Mount Gerizim, neither the Temple of Jerusalem? Wait. How does that work? Jesus took worship viral. I'm going to tell you something really cool. It's still revolutionary today. Even though we get the idea, many of us who've been at church for a while or grew up or whatever your background is, you've probably heard the idea, you get it. Oh, it's the people, not the building. We say these things. We kind of get it. But you know what what we're missing? I'm going to tell you what you're missing. We live in a world where people don't go to church or do anything for that matter without first checking it out online. You probably don't do anything. I rarely do anything without first checking it out online. What am I doing when I do that? I'm wanting to see if there's value. Right? I was just recently looking for some new, uh, I, I enjoy hunting. I was looking for some hunting gear and I've been checking stuff out like crazy because I'm trying to figure out, is this going to work or is that going to work? Which is better? I want to, I want to experience value and it's very annoying because I don't, can't tell by the picture. Clothes is the worst thing to do this with. So then I buy it and then I have to return it and it's very annoying. But people do that with church all the time. In fact, church isn't the default. They don't go to church anymore. If they really ever did, maybe. I mean, maybe it seemed like more people did, but they don't really do it anymore, do they? But what they do is they go online and they check it out. And if they get some sense of value, they might show up. Well, here's the revolutionary statement of the entire message. When you take worship with you wherever you go, you're letting them experience the value. Because they see it in you. 
Wherever you go, God and his truth goes with you. And that worship is what inspires the people around you. Maybe not now, maybe not tomorrow, but there's going to be the point in time when things don't work out and they start shopping. And instead of going online, they're going to call Aaron. They're going to call Eugene. They're going to call Anthony, Lindsay, Bonnie. They're going to call you because they've seen value, I hope, in you. Because they've seen your worship. And they go, well, why would I go online? I know a guy. I know a guy. Let's go with him. And then coming to church will be the most natural thing they can think of. Well, of course, I'm going because look at the value. You don't believe me. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. It happened right there. This woman experienced the truth of God in Jesus and the spirit of God in Jesus. And the the response she had was to go home and tell everybody she knew. And then what happened is they all turned around and went with her back to go see Jesus at the well. And church broke out right there on a sunny, sunny afternoon at a well in Samaria, of all places, at the feet of Mount Gerizim, where they would have normally climbed up to go worship some false god. Instead, they were with the true God at the well, worshiping at the base of that very mountain. Amen. Amen. Because of Jesus' worship wow. and her ability to see it within him. Your worship can change your world. Let's stand. Let's go arm in arm. If we can cross the aisles, I'm going to close this out in a word of prayer and we'll enjoy a time of fellowship. Father, we are so grateful to come to you this morning and thank you for the singers. Thank you for this building. Thank you for the gifts of people over the years to be able to fund what we have so far. We're so grateful for those acts of worship. They've changed our lives. They've changed my life. God, let us pay it forward. Let us leave here committed to letting your truth and your spirit reside in us powerfully to change the way we spend, to change the way we think about our day, and where we're going, and the people around us. Let your worship shine in every one of our hearts and affect the people around us because, God, we know that your why is people. Your why is that you love every soul that walks this earth and has ever walked this earth and ever will walk this earth, and it's your desire that people spread that love. It's the mission to love you and to love people. God, please let us leave here changed by our worship of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.
Yeah. Uh,